0: Many people who come to a retreat center such as this one and begin to explore the path of meditation talk about experiencing a great sense of relief and appreciation. And part of the relief that is talked about is that it is possible to undertake a spiritual path and a spiritual practice without being obliged to adopt the religious or social beliefs and attitudes of another culture. When you come to this practice, there is obviously no demand extended to you that you wear somebody else's clothes that you attempt to become someone else. Clearly we don't have any process of initiation here where we dispense robes or teach you the right way to bow. We're clearly not big into rituals and you don't even have to learn another language No one asks you to become a Buddhist, to surrender to a teacher, or to sign any loyalty pledges. And you can trust in this. We're not going to, you know, suddenly pull these out of the hat on the last day. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's a relief that it's possible to partake of and to hear a very timeless and profound teaching in a form, a language that we can feel some rapport with. Appreciation is also a feeling that is spoken of. Appreciation of the simplicity of what we do here. That it's possible to follow a path that's really not filled with progressive stages um, and signposts of progress where there is not so many goals that we must strive for or experiences we must achieve. And I know that that was the beauty of this practice that first very much attracted me. The actuality of asked, being us simply to be awake and to nurture our own capacities for profound compassion and generosity and wisdom. Because this teaching is really concerned with honoring all that is true within ourselves and it is rooted in a love of life. This teaching is rooted in a love of oneness a love of peace, a love of harmony, and so a love of life. When the where well this path then is an invitation, certainly it is not a demand. When the Buddha used to begin his teachings, he used to begin with the words ahipasiko, which translated means come and see. Come and listen. And one of the most famous of the Buddha sutras is the the sutra about the creativity of doubt. That we should never accept something because it has a long history or because millions of other people accept it and tell us it is true. We should never accept something because it seems to come from a grand authority. That we should accept something only when we examine it in the light of our own experience to understand what is true for ourselves and to discard all that is not true. I think the very openness of that approach, it is like a ray of sunshine on a cloudy day. I think especially for us, living in a world which is so very, very saturated with formulas and prescriptions and complexities. So many experts in our world. So many beliefs and expectations often telling us how to live, what we should become, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. And often what does underlie so many of the So many of the formulas and prescriptions we encounter, I think, in our lives, is really a demand for perfection, which accompanies has accompanying with it the the penalties that we are going to pay for imperfection. And this path is certainly not not interested in perfection, but in liberation, in living wholeheartedly and freely, and in bringing into our lives a real strength of compassion and wisdom. The relief and the appreciation, I think, that we encounter in seeing this path as an invitation and understanding its simplicity does need to be tempered with a certain caution and investigation investigation and inquiry into the ways in which we are tempted to burden our own path of meditation with our own cultural conditioning and beliefs. That we can feel that we have freely discarded, you know, beliefs and cultural attitudes that have nothing to do with us and feel that that's a great freedom. But of course it is possible also to superimpose our own perhaps condition beliefs and attitudes onto our path in ways, in ways that our path of meditation can, in subtle ways, become extensions of the confusions that burden our lives. There are ways that this teaching and this path have evolved and are presented that are somewhat different in Asia and in the West, and I certainly don't want to make some sort of geographical boundary, black and white situation in this, but I think some of the differences and approaches that are encountered in Asia and in the West illustrate also different approaches that we can carry within ourselves. In Asia, which is very much the home, obviously, of this teaching, where this teaching has its roots, I think one of the greatest strengths that I encountered in the way meditation is taught in Asia is the very uncompromising nature of the teaching. And it's incredibly uncompromising. Um, it is kind of understood without ever being spoken of that for a person to undertake a contemplative time in their lives, for a person to undertake a path of meditation, It's understood that they do that with the sole intention of awakening to the same enlightenment and liberation that the Buddha awoke to on the eve of his enlightenment. It's kind of understood or taken for granted that that is why you practice, is simply to be free, that there is no other agenda. And I think that that approach is experienced as an intention which can flavor or the way in which we practice the relationship that we have to practice. Because if our intention is that uncompromising and that simple, then in many ways, our practice also becomes incredibly simple. Because our practice is then a practice of nothing else but wholehearted mindfulness, of cultivating a profound commitment to non-dwelling, of learning how to let go in each moment deeply and willingly and gladly. Letting go tends to be the practice. Um, I know there was a time when I went into a monastery in Thailand for a short period of time for a number of different reasons. But in entering into that monastery, (laughs) um, I was sitting, sitting in the hall for several days and wondering why no one had ever come along and told me what I was meant to be doing there. And after several days, I went and asked the, the abbot who was there and said, you know, well, you know, we tried to talk about the practice and he looked at me and was really surprised. And he said, "Well, you just sit down and let go?
1: <laughs>
0: no more needed to be said. I think, This practice then becomes really a practice of cultivating calmness and insight that is part of the practice. But such a very simple and and uncompromising approach also deeply challenges us. It deeply challenges us. Because it really means not making deals with the moment, not trying to negotiate mindfulness, not really making compromises in our, own, in our own exploration, it means not following the desires and wants that arise, letting them go. Not following the aversions and resistances that arise, letting them go. It means not lingering upon any thought or any feeling or upon anything at all. And we can see the way in which that approach very much has its roots within something of a monastic um, practice. I mean, the reason why you know monks and nuns have this t- incredible 217 or 218 rules is not because they're in love with rules, but because these these rules in the Vinaya, uh, the the guidelines for the ordained Sangha, are basically there to act as a mirror, it means not lingering on any desire or want or any aversion. That continuous or that continual emphasis upon letting go is really, it's not intended in any way to be a punishment or a deprivation or to give ourselves a hard time. It is actually intended to liberate, to not feed any notion of self into anything at all. Now this, I think, uh, my sense is that this approach can be very exciting and very vital and it can also be misused it can also be misused, whether it's in Asia or whether it's in the West. In the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutra of the Buddha, where this practice comes from, the Buddha says that the yogi establishes themselves in mindfulness, not grasping onto anything in the world, but mindfully knowing each moment just as it is. Now in this, I think this approach, which is very uncompromising, this not grasping is taken very seriously. Applied to our relationship, to our feelings, our thoughts, our bodies, whatever is received through the sense door, nothing is made special in the world of experience. No hierarchies are made in the world of experience. The intention is simply not to grasp Not to linger, but to know all things as they are. Without any thought of why did that arise? Where did it come from? Is it good? Is it bad? Should there be more of it? Should there be less of it? Do I need to resolve it? Do I need to fix it? Do I need to perfect it? The answer is always simply be mindful of what is present not investing self in anything at all. That nowhere, if there is no investment, do we find any notion of I am lingering. Now this means essentially really not being all that interested in content. You know that it really doesn't matter what arises in the world of experience, that all things are arising into an equality of attentiveness an equality of mindfulness to be seen, to be let go of, to rest in the just seeing rather than in the contents of what is seen, to be present in the presence of all things. And I think Anna mentioned the analogy that is used in Buddhist teaching of the person uh, who was shot by an arrow, you know, falls over, shot by an arrow in the woods, People come running to help and and this this person says, hold on a minute, before you help me, before you take this arrow out, I want to know what kind of wood it's made from, I want to know who shot it, I want to know what angle it was shot from, I want to know why they shot it, you know, and I want to know if they're being punished and blah, 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 you know, and instead of just removing the arrow, which is what a letting go is about. I know for myself in many years of practicing in Asia and this might seem odd but in many years of practicing in Asia I never ever once spoke to a teacher about a problem. Never, never once ever mentioned my story my history, my past, my feelings. Why? Because I was very aware that the word problem did not exist in the vocabulary of my teachers. They didn't know this word, problem. (laughs) I didn't know it. If I had gone with a problem the instructions would have always been exactly the same. (laughs) Whether it was in relationship to fear or listening to the sound of a bird, whether it was a thought about my father or a thought about lunch. Always the answer would have been the same, be mindful, don't dwell on it, let go. (laughs) And this would have been the kind of standard answer, you could imagine interviews weren't that exciting, you
1: know,
0: (laughs) you know, because you knew before you ever went in exactly what was going to be said. So after a while you stopped going, because after all, you know, you carried this little voice around and they said, be mindful, let go, don't dwell. My experience of my teachers in Asia was generally in the area of meditation instructions, They were really very quiet. They just didn't really have a lot to say. That doesn't mean they were quiet all the time because Asian teachers are often known for these marathon discourses that can go on through the night in a language you don't understand. So really, it's also not that helpful, you know. Listen to a five-hour discourse in Thai, I can tell you it's not that enlightening. So they would always have this very ready solution. Now this is a really hard practice. This is a really hard practice because you're constantly just having to return. You know, there's nowhere, nothing else to do except hoping and trusting that these people actually know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and that it's okay just to be mindful and to let go and to not dwell. Now, there is something, I think, very joyful and very profound in the simplicity of this approach, because it's so uncluttered, and because my my sense in that time was that this approach held so clearly a vision of the path, that it really was just about being free, not in some distant time, and not after, and not conditional upon becoming like this or becoming like that. It was just so simple, there was this total confidence that everyone practicing had this capacity to be free, that liberation was imminent, and it was just a question of awakening to what was already there. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't although say, although I say that there is something very joyful about this, I would also say it's not free of problems. You know, that this approach can be incredibly clear and uncluttered but it can also have some weaknesses. And in my experience, it can have some weaknesses. Um, One of the kind of weaknesses may lie in in overlooking the need for some personal insight. Overlooking the need for some personal insight. Um, As a basis, personal insight not as an end in itself, that self-knowledge, self-understanding, to act as a strong foundation for understanding impermanence, for understanding suffering, for understanding emptiness. Um, There's little value given to that level of personal understanding of our stories of ourselves as a basis for being able to let go of resistance, to let go of fear, to be able to let go very deeply. Certainly in my experience, I know that it is possible to have some really grand and dramatic meditation experiences of samadhi, of bliss, of transcendence, of altered states of consciousness. Experiences that can be remarkably illuminating and expanding and inspiring. But also to find that when the experiences end, that somehow the belief systems about who I was could still be there and, and not be uprooted, almost lying in wait to ambush me when the experience would end. You know, at one point I was living in, in the mountains in India studying with a, a Tibetan Lama and spending many months of reflection upon compassion and the willingness to see all beings in this world in the grand cycle of existence that perhaps every being in this world had at some point been my mother. And then how would I wish to treat them? For some Westerners, this was a difficult teaching. <laughs> but, I know, I'm reflecting on compassion, you know, and I, I really felt, really filled with boundless compassion pretty well. Except for this dog, we had this dog. And and this dog had this awful habit of foraging and ripping apart everybody's food supplies, you know. And this would be very frustrating because in Indi- when I was in India, we were all very poor and we didn't have much money. And, you know, it was a very basic kind of existence. So food was really survival. And it was also a long way to go and get food, you know. It was a two hour trip to go and get food. So, you know, I used to really peeved with this dog. I said, really irritated with this dog because you'd just get some food and pretty soon the dog would come tearing out of your room, you know, this mush all covered with your food. <laughs> It'd be so infuriating, you know, and used to try and practice boundless compassion for this poor, <laughs> starving dog. And one day I remember getting so infuriated, so angry with this dog that I picked up a stone and I was gonna throw it at the dog and my teacher jumped out the bushes.
1: <laughs> you can imagine,
0: you can imagine that the embarrassment. Oh, is not, not really going to throw this stone at the dog, you know. He just looked at me and smiled, you know, and then went home. But it's very easy to see how, e- how simple it is to be filled, of course, with boundless compassion and patience and joy and forgiveness. As long as we're sitting on a cushion, you know. It's easy to be compassionate when nobody's disturbing us. It's easy to let go when there's nothing we want. (laughs) (laughs) It's easy to practice non-resistance. We're in the middle of a great, happy, joyful sitting. And yet we see that this is not always so unconditional. We probably see this here too. You know, we can be really calm on a cushion. Um, And what happens when lunch is late? (laughs) You feel it, you know, on a cellular level. You know, the impatience and the anxiety, calmness is a distant memory. It's easy to be compassionate until our roommate snores. It's easy to sit down on a cushion and let go for an hour when we know we've stashed a banana in our cup in case we're hungry after an hour of letting go. (laughs) You know, it is easy to compartmentalize our insights. I mean, what moves us? We see everybody picks up retreat patterns, retreat habits here. You know, whatever, what, what is moving us when we're first in the lunch line every day? You know, is it more than coincidence? <laughs> we just happen to be first in the lunch line every day? What is moving us when we see ourselves passing a slow yogi? You know, <laughs> like there's a fast lane in the walking room. You know, my we sitting why is this person so slow? You know, they're holding me up. I'm in a hurry to get to my walking space. You know, what is moving us when we find ourselves lusting after another yogi? You know, you look know, so calm and peaceful. You know, I'm mine, so, you know. Spinning these fantasies. It does seem, it does seem that when there is insufficient personal insight, that we can make these very neat compartments in our lives. You know, that this is the place to be compassionate and renunciate and simple. And this is the place when we get into contact situations where it's fine to be lustful or impatient or angry. we, be, we, can, we make those compartments, I think, because in some ways, in some ways, there is not the application of insight. In some ways, we are compartmentalizing our understanding in a way in which we're making divisions, where it, our insight is conditional, in a sense. When we make compartments, um, instead of bringing insight into understanding every moment of our lives, then our life is separate from our path. When we don't compartmentalize insight, when we see that every moment is an invitation to freedom, that every moment is an invitation to transformation, then our life is our path. And we don't ask any questions about integration. We don't have any problems, any issues with this. We know our life is our path because the only moment we can ever transform, the only moment we can ever be free in is the moment we are awake in. Now, when we are faced with this dilemma of compartmentalization, you know, we ask ourselves, and the question arises, well, why don't we bring the same mindfulness to these moments of irritation, or these moments of impatience, or these moments of resistance, as the mindfulness that we bring to our sitting and walking? Now, this is a good question to ask. It's a good question to ask. But it's equally relevant to acknowledge that no one has yet created or taught a path to liberation which bypasses our notion of self. And the, the fact or this notion of self which carries beliefs and likes and dislikes and opinions and prejudices and judgments. This notion is a personal companion and fairly constant companion in our lives, perhaps. For many people, to have the inspiration and the clarity of mindfulness in each moment that allows them to let go, it requires first a foundation of self-understanding, a foundation of acceptance, of forgiveness, of compassion, of loving kindness. These are the qualities of heart and mind that bring calmness and balance. We see that so clearly. These are the qualities of heart and mind that bring calmness and balance. When we are filled with anger or hatred or jealousy, we can find no calmness. When we are filled with impulsiveness or reaction, we can find no balance. And often the very first place of bringing calmness and balance is actually fostering and nurturing those qualities of acceptance, self-acceptance, of forgiveness, of compassion, of self-understanding. This is what allows us to settle instead of being lost in resistance or preoccupation. Now, there is this kind of outstanding question, I think, that floats around in our world that asks, how much self is actually needed to undertake meditation practice? How strong a self is needed to deepen an understanding? This question, I think, is one that invites endless debate. Now, in, in our culture, I think we do have a fairly unique philosophy that says that in order to let go of self, you first need a strong self to let go of. This has almost become taken for granted. Now, I would like us to explore that a little bit. Do you know many people in your world who've got a really strong sense of self? (coughs) I actually meet quite a lot of people who have a very strong sense of self. You know, you think of these people in our world, you know, there's lots of people out there, you know, doing and fixing and performing and achieving and, you know, uh, filled with successes and prestige and confidence. Have you noticed that this is more an enlightened group? I haven't. If it was, we would have a wonderful political system, wonderful governments, we would have wonderful employers. I actually don't notice that this is a more necessarily enlightened group. I don't actually really see that it's a whole lot easier to let go of a strong sense of self than what we call a weak sense of self. It seems to me that the prerequisite For being able to let go of notions of self has not to do with strength or weakness, but it has to do with trust and confidence in a sense of vision. Now I personally feel that vision is actually what allows us to let go of limitation. Vision in our capacity to be awake, to be free, to deepen in understanding. A sense of vision which is about our capacity to live with great compassion and understanding. A confident, underlying confidence in our own sense of being and possibility. Now this confidence in possibility, it really it's not dependent on having, you know, a a great mind and a great personality and a great appearance and a great strong belief systems or a strong sense of self. In fact, this vision really doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the endless changing descriptions and judgments that pass through our consciousness. What allows us to let go? What allows us to be present? What allows us and enables us to be awake? I think these are really important questions for us to ask. I think we do need compassion and generosity and loving kindness and calmness to let go rather than being entangled in aversion and resistance because these are the places where self tries to find a foothold. But it also seems to me that acceptance and compassion and forgiveness and patience—that these are not the attributes or the possessions of the self. They're not the attributes or possessions of the self. Where do they come from? You know, I, I don't—I can't see any way that we could say, "Oh yes, I get better at being compassionate and generous and patient." Compassion and generosity and patience are the attributes of wisdom. They are not the attributes of the self. They are not the attributes of the I-notion. Where do they come from? They are the ways that seeing and understanding, that are the natural outcome of connectedness of learning to be present and learning to open. These qualities of compassion and generosity of loving kindness, they are sometimes the fruits of the practice, but they are also the ways and the path through which we embody our commitment to wakefulness, our commitment to vision and our sense of possibility. How do we embody those qualities? through our willingness to welcome all things without prejudice. In response to the question of how much self we actually need to deepen in understanding, well, everyone had enough to get here. Everyone had enough to get here. And from this point on, it's not a process or a challenge of getting a better self. It's a process of understanding something much deeper than that. Now I think we as Westerners can, for different reasons, struggle very deeply with the notion of letting go, and especially we can struggle a whole lot with the notion of letting go of the self. Um, I think we need to look at our background. We live, I think most of us come from a background, where there is a huge emphasis and tribute given to developing the self. To developing the self through identity and through achievement and credentials, etc. You know, we are so much encouraged in our life to be someone. Make our mark. You know, stand out. Be yourself. So much encouragement given to, you know, individuality. Be an individual. Be different, you know. Be, be unique. Be strong. Why, why do we have this encouragement? Because we have this whole belief system operating that unless we do that, we're just going to get swallowed up by a whole lot of other selves. You know, that we need a grand self and a big self in order to compete in a world of selves. And that if we don't do that, that somehow we're going to end up being a victim or being overwhelmed or become invisible. What happens, I think, in this this culture, this subculture of developing a strong sense of self is there can be also accompanying that a real subduing of any vision of mystical awakening. I think that is really subdued in our world. Any vision of mystical awakening. You know, somebody said to me, and so I was talking about the practice, and they said to me, oh, well, enlightenment's fine, but it's not gonna put dinner on the table, is it? (laughs) (laughs) No. No, it's probably not going to put dinner on the table, but that was not my primary concern at that moment.
1: <laughs>
0: I think we become, can become, when we live in a world of competitive selves or feel that we need to compete in that world, we become, can become very deeply disconnected from a very profound sense of faith, inner faith in our own being and our own sense of possibilities that we can become deeply disconnected from a trust in our own innate wisdom and compassion. What happens when we lose that trust in a sense of our own vision and possibilities, in a faith in ourselves? I think what happens when we are disconnected in that way is, is that a kind of vacuum is created inwardly, a vacuum, a feeling of something missing a feeling of something amiss, a feeling of something lacking. And we sub- for faith and confidence and vision, we are tempted to substitute, striving and proving and defending. It's a poor trade-off. It's a very poor exchange. Instead of inner richness, we are tempted to substitute the comfort that we think we will find in accumulating and holding These are the activities of fear. Defending, protecting, proving, accumulating, holding. These can be, not always, but they can very strongly be the activities of fear. And yet we fear letting go of those activities because we fear annihilation. That those activities make visible in some way a sense of who we are and that we fear that if we let go of those activities, there will be annihilation. As we are more still and more quiet in our practice and learn to listen inwardly, we do meet ourselves. We meet the I story. We awaken to the inner landscape of our bodies, our feelings, our thoughts, our images. We awaken to a landscape that sometimes has moments of anger, of dullness, of resistance. And we see that there isn't any way to bypass all of this. There is no way to some, somehow jump over it, or jump over the self or jump over the I story. In fact, awareness seems to almost magnify or to highlight the activities of the self. You know, and sometimes we are really, sometimes horrified, sometimes curious to see the, the endless streams of busyness and preoccupation of aversion. It is why some people feel, you know, I was a fairly normal person before I came to meditation.
1: <laughs>
0: and now, when we encounter this I story and this inner story of busyness, the inner world of, of agitation and unease, I think it provokes to the surface of our own consciousness many of our own conditioned tendencies which become superimposed upon the path. In encountering our stories and our, what we call our problems, ourselves and our issues, Sometimes those stories and those issues and those things that we describe as being obstacles or problems actually become our path. And this is where we bring our own conditioned tendencies in, superimpose upon the path, this becomes our path. We suddenly have, instead of the first approach I talked about as being the intention to be awake and to be free, suddenly our meditation It's a whole big menu. It's a massive menu um, with so much on its agenda. And our sense of freedom or our intention towards liberation is sometimes drowned in the busyness of that agenda. What are some of the patterns that are produced when we encounter the I story? One of the patterns is the pattern of blame and judgment, out of which comes striving and wanting and reaching, endlessly into the next moment, which we are convinced is going to be a better moment. (coughs) There's no striving without rejection. There's no forcing without rejection of what is. Rejection means we're always reaching to something apart and separate from where we are. What are the origins of our judgments? You know, there can be a lot of judgments. What are the origins of our judgments about ourselves? Notice how often the critical mind arises in relationship to our experience. We live in a world where we say we have bad sittings and good sittings, where we feel, I'm not good enough, or that something is unacceptable in our experience or about ourselves, and our judgments are very powerful because they speak to us about an I story we're not comfortable with. We don't want this I story. You know, we don't want the I story, which looks inadequate or which looks terrible. I mean, think of that near experience. Very few people have what they describe as being, you know, really difficult, bad. Sitting, a terrible sitting. Very few, few people come out of that and say, you know, I'm a terrific meditator. <laughs> Most people come out and they say they equate the contents of their experience with their description of themselves. If there is difficulty in the experience, it means I'm like this. I'm I'm inadequate, or I'm I'm a failure, or I'm a d- disaster. In the same way, you know, very few people come out of a sitting that they describe as calm and a good sitting uh, complaining. It's mostly great, you know. Finally, I'm getting somewhere. When we have what we call a bad sitting or a difficult experience, it seems to say something about ourselves, about who we are. That is the leap that we make through clinging. That's the leap we make through clean. That this is saying something about who I am. And so therefore it's up to us to do something about us, which is why our meditation gets so complicated with our strategies as we busy tur- busily turn into an interior decorator. Rearranging the furniture, painting the walls, putting up other wallpaper, changing the fixtures. What are we looking for in that? the I or our sense of I is looking for a place to rest. A place to rest that we can describe as being acceptable, okay, good enough. A place to rest that that we fear where we are not fearful, disturbed, or threatened. Because we blame ourselves for what is wrong and we forget, as I mentioned the other evening, that all errors arise not necessarily out of being something wrong or being an adequate person, that errors arise from misunderstanding, from ignorance, from not seeing clearly, and that there is no one to blame for ignorance. Ignorance is without blame. We can be, we can make certain choices. We can be caught up in our fixing or we can really understand that ignorance is dissolved through wise understanding. Our choice is to get caught in blame or judgment, or our choice is to redirect that energy towards wise understanding. And where is wise understanding found? Except through our commitment to be awake in the present moment. Another thing sometimes we are looking for in our path is that very elusive goal of an acceptable or an improved self. A perfection is a tyrant in our lives. We spend so much effort trying to achieve it and so many tears are shed when perfection seems to be beyond our grasp. We can spend so much time working on ourselves, feeling always, you know, we're getting a better and better self. We're educating ourselves to be a better self by reading the right books and having the right experiences and having the right thoughts, pursuing perfection, looking for the perfection that we're convinced that everybody has except for ourselves. We feel ashamed and self-conscious at times in the face of feeling not good enough. And then we think we have to do more work on ourselves, more work on ourselves, get more and more acceptable. We can become such experts in trying to become, trying to become someone, trying to become something, trying to become better that we forget what it means to be. We can become so absorbed in the task of arriving somewhere else that we can forget what it actually means just to be present, to rest with what is. We can become so preoccupied with doing that we forget what it means to have that incredible generosity of heart that allows all things to be. We can bring so many agendas to our meditation that we forget that all that we are really seeking for is peace, is understanding and freedom, which can never be found in another moment, apart and separate from this one. Sometimes we can even come to believe that we can only heal the present by healing the past, that the problem all lies in our past, in what we have experienced, in the things that happened to us, in the things that have gone by, and that in order to be free, somehow we have to go back to all of that history and find out everything that arose in our lives, everything that influenced us, and then when we've done that and found the solutions and found the answers, then we're going to be awake in the present. Is anybody really? I mean, maybe we have slight gaps in our memory, but is anybody really not aware of the causes of suffering? I mean, is this it's not always inaccessible information. This practice is that challenges our conditioning. It is intended to disturb us. Meditation is intended to disturb us. It is cultivating a disturbing factor in our lives. It is not a comfort zone. It is here to challenge and disturb us, to radically overturn our assumptions and our beliefs. It is an invitation to travel totally new pathways in our lives, to open our heart and consciousness to new understanding, new ways of seeing. It's a simple teaching of going nowhere, of resisting and pursuing nothing, of becoming no one. Then we are at peace with all things. We are at peace with all things. Learning to let go of our judgments and demands that there is nothing inwardly or outwardly that we must banish. By healing the present, we heal the past. This is one of the radical challenges. By healing the present, we heal the past. No matter what our history is, of anger, of greed, of, of suppression, of rage, of violence, of being wounded, of being hurt, one moment, one moment of Experiencing deeply a profound inner contentment, openness, confidence, and faith brings our entire history into question. We are no longer able to say, this is what I am. This is what I am. All of our history is overturned by opening inwardly to new understandings of what is possible for us. All of our history is overturned. It is no longer a reference point for the present. There is a real skillfulness in being able to come to this practice with no other purpose than to be awake. A dear friend of mine, Larry, who teaches here, he he talked to me once about his first experience of teaching when he had been trained by his teacher. And his teacher said to Larry, he said, I want you to teach this New Year's retreat. So Larry, with trepidation and apprehension, said, on my own? And his teacher said, yes. And Larry said, all right, you know. No one signed up. No. No one signed up. You know, it was New Year's time, it was a busy time, people were busy, nobody knew who this guy was who was teaching this retreat, nobody signed up. So Larry went to his teacher and he said, you know, well, let's just cancel it. I mean, after all, nobody's coming, let's just cancel it. And his teacher said to him, Larry, what is your purpose in teaching this retreat? It is to be awake. It is to be free and to embody that freedom. Teach this retreat. So Larry taught the retreat, there was no one there. <laughs> he taught the retreat. He sat and he walked, he gave little Dharma talks.
1: <laughs>
0: I don't know what the interviews were like.
1: <laughs>
0: hey, Larry, how are you doing? Not bad, how you? <laughs> he taught the retreat, he said it was an incredibly liberating experience. To teach without, to do that without any thought of result, no purpose, nothing to prove, just to be present in the service of wakefulness. Just to be present in the service of wakefulness. I thought this was a profound lesson for how to approach a retreat. Just to be present in the service of wakefulness. Just to be present in the service of freedom. To be simply present, befriending each moment, laying down the burden of self is not necessarily a grand or difficult task. It is learning to lay down in every moment the burden of belief, which is laying down the burden of blame about imperfection, imperfection, improvement, and rejection, laying down this burden. My teacher once said to me, Letting go is the greatest gift of compassion for yourself. But letting go is the greatest gift of compassion for yourself. To come close to this moment, all that we need is the willingness just to see. That profound, heartfelt willingness just to see. And then all that we do in our practice, our sitting, our walking, our efforts, our intentions, all of them is in the service of freedom. If we could have a few moments quietly together. May all beings rest in awareness. May all beings deepen in wisdom. May all beings abide in freedom.